Hello and welcome to an extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. My name is Mohid Malik and I'm the Projects Assistant at the Phelan U.S. Center. Today I'm joined by Dr. Amanda Sahara Dorso, who is the Assistant Professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown University. And I'm joined by Dr. Tabitha Bonilla, who is the Associate Professor of Human Development and Social Policy at Northwestern University, as well as a faculty fellow at the Institute for Policy Research. Dr. Dorso and Dr. Bonilla were the authors of a 2023 paper published in the Journal of Race, Ethnicity, and Politics titled, Religion or Race? Using Intersectionality to Examine the Role of Muslim Identity and Evaluations on Belonging in the United States. In this extra inning, we talk about this idea of belonging, and we dive deep into their research on the topic of ethnic and racial identity, and how Muslims are broadly conceptualized within the American psyche. Great. Thank you. Thank you both again for taking the time to to speak to me, speak to us. I think it would be great to start our conversation by just maybe delivering a summary or an overview of your new research as it was presented in the blog post uh, titled Religion Over Race, White Americans Do Not Support Green Cards for Muslim Immigrants, Even If They Are White. Um, You can even, within the summary, talk about your research more generally and doesn't just have to be what was presented there. And I think as you give the summary, could you go over why you found it important to disaggregate one's identity by considering their religious identity and their racial identity, you know, broadly speaking. And within this, as a second, you know, follow-up question, could you also explain the so-called racialization of Islam? You know, what does that mean? What does it mean for a religious identity to be racialized? And what, you know, what are the implications for that? So, you know, immigration is an issue that seems to be hot button in many, many countries. Uh, the U.S. notwithstanding. And there are a lot of discussions about who we should admit as immigrants because there seems to be opinions (laughs) as to who we want as immigrants to to a certain country, our country in the U.S. or maybe in the U.K., and who we don't want as immigrants. A lot of this comes from, you know, use of resources, um, who's going to use our resources versus who's going to contribute. And um, another portion of that tends to come from who's going to fit in or belong in our society. And we kind of touch on in this research, there are different elements of belonging. There's different perspectives from which we can understand belonging. At, you know, the macro level, we can talk about belonging in terms of a legal sense. So who is legally allowed to belong, as in be in a certain country, be in the United States. So these are visa requirements and so forth. This is where you have discussions of undocumented immigrants and so forth. Um, But there's also how an individual themselves feels when they're in a certain country. Do they feel like they belong where they have immigrated to, or do they feel like an outsider? But there's also something in the middle And that's society's perception of who belongs in a country. And um, while all of these elements are important and interesting, I think, in a research perspective, we really focus on in this paper who white Americans uh, feel should belong in and should be allowed to immigrate to the United States in a permanent sense. So that's a green card rather than just, oh, here for 
a work visa and then leaving. Um, and so while we do kind of touch on levels of education, English proficiency, we also look at identity features. So what race or what country individuals come from, but also um, their religious backgrounds as well. Uh, so then that's the the main focus of this paper. I think the other thing we try to do is really beyond asking about belonging and how people understand belonging in context of immigration, we really wanted to open it up um, to think about identities more holistically. It's often done um, either from a racial perspective or an ethnic perspective. So you'll talk, people will talk about Latinos, they'll, they'll talk about um, Muslims, or sometimes they'll talk about um, Black people immigrating. And the interesting thing about Muslims is that they, they're Muslims from every racial background. And so we really wanted to think about how does the public understand identities when we talk about them from an intersectional way. Um, and I, I think that is a piece of tapping into what an ethno race means, or, you know, I think as you posed in your question, like what, what does it mean when we think about a religion as a racial group? And really it's, you know, and I think what we're finding is that religions operating like a broad overarching category here that's substituted for race. And when we give that racial information, it does add a little bit of information for the respondents in our survey, but it isn't the main thing that they're thinking about. So I think I think overall what this tells us is that the, the public at large has a really hard time conceptualizing identity as more than one thing at a time. And so the, the quick, easy summary is to just think about Muslim as an ethno race or as a singular component of identity that is the basis for their decision-making. And I'll also add that there's a conflation a lot of times with Middle Eastern and, and North African or MENA identity and um, Muslim identity. And as Tabitha mentions, you know, um, Muslims are, are religious subjects and they can be from any background. And we tend to understand that religion is a choice in the United States in particular, especially because a big... Um, sort of civic educational aspect, civic educational aspect of growing up in America is the fact that, oh, you know, there's freedom of religion. You can be whatever religion you want. You can choose your religion. We are raised with that narrative. And then at the same time, we tend to treat certain religious, religious identities as being uh, inseparable from um, like a racial identity or inseparable from a choice. Um, and so what we found in a lot of the existing literature is that either people would test, um, these sorts of questions based on countries of origin, like MENA countries of origin or MENA races, or they would test, um, by including just Muslims. And so there was not a lot of information about how these two inner identities would intersect and maybe, be thought about as a new different identity. So it's not intersectionality is not just about the addition of different identity categories, but actually, you know, the meaning changes when you consider multiple identities at once. And so that's why we thought this was a useful framework. 
to approach this question. Great. Thank you. And actually, this goes nicely into my next question, because in your research, you found I'm, I'm quoting um, the article uh, where you where you both said that race plays only a small role in moderating how white Americans evaluate Muslim immigrants. And that's the end of the quote. I guess taking that point and everything that you've said now um, in terms of the extant literature on this, what has this research taught you about the way in which there is that distinction between not just categorizations, but also those ideas of belonging that you spoke about earlier, where there's, you know, the legal aspect and then there's the more sociological aspect, right? That divide between official categorization and public perception, I think, is a really interesting divide. I, I, from, like just, you know, for the long, I, I understand that, you know, Middle Easterners tend to be categorized as, you know, being Caucasian, which I always, you know, just anecdotally found to be really interesting um, because I guess in the, um, the sort of like everyday sense, you don't, you don't really think of uh, Middle Easterners as being Caucasian, but officially, you know, I guess officially they are. Does that idea of whiteness become negated when that religious identity is attached to it? Because of course, you know, being Muslim, it, it doesn't even have to be from like a confessional point of view because you could just be culturally Muslim. But it seems like there's something particular about that 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 matters. Um, and I want to I, I just want to know a bit more. About, you know, I, I would love to hear more about your, your thoughts on that division and on why Americans feel white Americans feel that your religious identity has such an impact on your ability to assimilate within American society. I think that's a really spot on question. I think that religion plays, especially Muslim identity, plays a different role depending on what um, racial background you are from, at least in the U.S. context. Um, so like you did mention, and there are some really good research um, on on this topic, how, you know, uh, non-Hispanic, non-MENA, white Americans, if they are Muslim, especially if they're Muslim presenting, they're kind of separated out from their white race by others. You know, others don't really consider them to be white anymore. Um, and of course, there's a lot of existing research on this. So I'm, I'm not trying to, um, I w wish I could uplift all of that research, but I would like to highlight one article in particular that I think is very illustrative of this of this fact and maybe listeners would like to read because it's just very accessible and very interesting um but it's by um professor atia hussein and she does interviews with different muslims from different backgrounds including uh non uh non-hispanic non-mena white muslims but also black and african american muslims and one of the things she finds is basically that the the white muslims um, are kind of treated as if they are not from the United States. Like she talks about how one time this woman, white Muslim was washing her hands in a bathroom, in a public bathroom. And another lady like was like, oh no, you have to wash better. And was like talking to her as if she was, you know, an immigrant, didn't speak English, didn't know how to wash her hands. And she was like, what? I was born here. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, a lot of Black Muslims talk about how they're seen as Black first and their Muslim identity is kind of diminished in the United States. So I think 
um, and my own research um, shows that, you know, there are many ways to be non-white and there's only a few ways to be white. And that seems to be a combination of being from a, um, you know, non-Hispanic, non-Mena background, but also being Christian and especially not being Muslim. Yeah. And if I would just add that I think, I think that we build a little bit on that foundation of research when we ask some of our questions. And so what we find is certainly consistent with this idea um, because we ask after we present these profiles of migrants, we ask like, you know, who do you think will, or how much do you think these folks will assimilate to American culture? And the, the Muslim, you know, the Muslim profiles were always rated as not assimilating. And so it really just, seems to conform to this idea of people thinking of Muslims as, as, you know, kind of quote the other and um, distinct from other religious migrants. Um, And I, you know, I think, I think that kind of goes to this idea that um, it's, I I don't know that if necessarily that it erodes whiteness, but that whiteness really just doesn't play a role in that context because there's there's this other category that separates these migrant profiles out. Um, And I I think, you know, it's also telling to say that, you know, the race still matters uh, when these migrants were were perceived as black. Um, so there's like a, a small negative reaction there. So there is a compounding effect of identity. It's just, um, you know, it's just that being Muslim really supersedes all the other information that that people were given. And actually, I think I'll, I'll stick with you just for just to start off the third question, because I know, uh, Tabitha, you, you do study um, you know, you, you analyze political behavior and, and the way in which communication has an impact on political behavior and in terms of, you know, the citizenry. Um, and with my, for my third question, I just want to know, you know, how, because I think, you know, Muslim identity is interesting because America's relationship with that identity in especially the 21st century has such a huge foreign policy dimension to it um, in a way that it's quite different than I think a lot of other identities i would i would argue i mean it kind of reminds you of you know the, the american pre- i mean of course america's presence in latin america is still very very significant but you know the way how it was how it was in the 20th century i feel was you know perhaps even more so and i think america's now presence in the middle east and in the you know so-called muslim world is is quite similar in terms of that sort of um hegemonic presence um and especially you know it's not it's not all um antagonistic because they have a lot of allies in that region. But I guess my question is, you know, to what extent are perceptions that white Americans have towards Muslims when it comes to taking Muslims in as immigrants, when it comes to perceiving them in their ability to assimilate into American culture, to what extent is that based on domestic politics? And to what extent is that based on foreign politics? Because um, certainly with the presidency of Donald Trump, um, there was you know, it's, it goes without saying, I think there was a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment, either implicitly or explicitly laced in um, his rhetoric. Um, and one would assume that that has some sort of impact on on the perceptions of Muslims. Um, but of course, America's relationship with that part of the world hasn't, well, you know, it was pretty rocky before, way before President Trump came in. So 
Um, how do you sort of see those two forces um, influencing the the perception that that white Americans have? Oh, that's such such a good question. I'm gonna just like preface this with I think I'm I'm collecting information a little bit from what we've done here, but also from from other work, and then um, speaking a little bit speculatively. <laughs> So I think I think there's some evidence, and I'm forgetting the authors, that suggest that that Americans are much less familiar with foreign policy than they are domestic policy. And yet at the same time, I think some of what you're picking up on is the idea that this foreign policy discussions around it have kind of become embedded into the way we think about domestic politics. Um, so for example, you know, as you mentioned. U.S. interventions in Latin America. Now, we don't think so much about those interventions, but we do think about the effects of those interventions as migrants are coming across the border. And we have Governor Abbott um, trying to have Texas make its own state immigration policy in a, a legal battle right now about that. I think also, you know, as you mentioned, Donald Trump really played up and, and I think, to be honest, other presidents have also played up what was happening post 9-11 in conjunction with their presidency and tried to kind of inform people a little bit more and leverage what's happening in the Middle East for um, how people perceive them at home. So I, I think the simple answer I would say is that I, to be honest, don't feel like most Americans have a really good understanding about what's happening in this present moment of the Middle East, which I think then gives a whole lot of latitude for, for leaders to, to make short statements or to summarize things in particular ways that might lend toward us viewing Muslims as the other. I think we see this at the southern border. I think we, we see this a little bit in a um, and a fear of Muslims. And they, to be honest, I think we see political leaders doing, and I don't, you know, I don't have the data, but my gut says we see political leaders doing much less work helping to affirm and talk about the the actual assimilation and benefit uh, that migrants bring or, you know, the struggles that they might be facing that might be a, a result of U.S. foreign policy. So I think there's a lot of capacity then for for politicians to frame what's happening in ways that serves their purpose. Um, and so even even if U.S. citizens think that they're basing their decisions on a solid understanding of foreign policy, it may be the case that they are not. So I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, I, I think that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. I also, you know, I also think that that kind of two-dimensional understanding is a little bit of how Amanda and I started talking about this paper in particular is really thinking about the ways that people understand Muslim identity and that they also understand race. You know, this is true, I think, of Latin Americans and it's true of MENA identifiers is that the traditional census categories we have for race don't neatly overlap. Um, and so we have a lot of confusion and disagreement, I would say, even within academic communities about how we should measure these people and what information we should be trying to understand from these categories writ large. Oh, I was just going to add, at least in the MENA um, category, I think this is super pronounced because a lot of people tend to think that, oh, 
men of folks, you know, in the U S are legally classified as white, but you know, after nine 11, that wasn't the case. They were seen as non-white, but actually this was something that was in the process of, um, you know, men of folks moving away from being pushed out of whiteness back as far back as the late sixties and certainly into the seventies. And I think foreign policy played a big role. I don't think necessarily Americans knew the details of what was going on, but when you have um, oil crises, when you had a bunch of wars that the U S kind of picked sides on in the middle East, when you had the Iranian revolution and then the Iranian hostage crisis, certainly that Americans were aware of that. And that, and that helped play a role of like, oh, these people are others. They're not white like us. And it didn't really stop in the 70s. There was the, the Contra and then the Gulf War. And the U.S. is just really involved <laughs> in the Middle East. So I think um, that's certainly not the only case. Latin America is another really good example. Um, but I do think that Americans have a sense of what the U.S. is doing abroad and and when we have enemies, we tend to think of them as, you know, the whole group of people as bad guys. And uh, given current conceptions of whiteness, you know, white guys aren't usually the bad guys, to put it, you know, really bluntly. <laughs> and if I can just plug the for two seconds, the I think historical process that Amanda's talking about is in another publication of hers that's in Perspectives of Politics. So it really, I think. Um, underlines a lot of what we're trying to say about how um, the American public perceive Muslims as non-white and the historical process of how that came to be. So I would say that's another good. Thank you, Tabitha. Nice of you. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, um, you know, I mean, even when, if you go back, you know, when, I mean, when Edward Said wrote Orientalism, there was, I mean, the whole last part of that research is on Orientalism today. And it's, you know, it's talking about how it's presented in America. And that was, I want to say published in the 70s, I think. Um, at least that that sounds right to me. Late um, 60s, yeah, was, late 60s, 70s, yeah. around that time. Yeah. So clearly, you know, even within, you know, obviously, I know he at that point was, you know, I guess, you know, perceived as being quite radical. But there was this understanding that, you know, that this conception and this this otherness was was well and truly there you know what you know way before um anything that happened in the 21st century um i do also you know i'm just trying to again and, and please jump in whenever i say something that you know inspires uh inspires you but i'm just um and trying to I'm, I'm really trying to scrutinize why you know what makes this religious identity is so salient in this case because at you know as as we were talking about latin america for instance um a lot of latin americans you know they're they're confessionally anyways they're they're catholic they're christian they're they're you know part of what would be considered from just a strictly religious point of view the prototypical you know white religion right in in america but of course when it comes to them being otherized, their religion is not, you know, it's not going to be perceived as, well, you know, they are Catholic, so maybe we can give them a few extra points. You know, I, you know, of course, I'm being a bit facetious in, in terms of that. But there, there is, you know, when it comes to this particular group, their religious identity is basically, I mean, it's there's, in my, in my opinion, it's, you know, it's very unimportant, um, because it, they're, they're not being looked at from that lens. Um, but from 
when when you consider people from the Middle East, it's, you know, I guess what I want to know is, you know, how much of it is them being strictly Middle Eastern and them being from a part of the world where most people are Muslim? Because, of course, a lot, not every Middle Easterner is Muslim, not even culturally. Um, You know, they they could be, you know, there's a lot of religions in the Middle East. um, But, of course, Islam has a cultural hegemony, I suppose, over the, you know, the entire region, which is, which plays a role in, in how they're perceived. But I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to, you know, I don't know where it, we, we, we can start and stop in terms of the historical trajectory of this, you know, when did it become more salient? Has it become more salient, you know, over time? Um, but I suppose, you know, if you were to project into the future, you know, what, what do you think the future of American Muslim relations looks like? Because if you look at a lot of different metrics, um, there's quite a few good, you know, Pew Research studies on this, you know, Muslim Americans aren't, you know, they don't really do anything out of the ordinary. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they, they, they're just as likely to serve in the military as any other religious group. I know as a voting bloc, they tend to be quite progressive in their uh, voting behavior, you know, quite strongly democratic. Um, but if you were to look into the future, what do you think this research tells you about the white American relationship with Muslims, both in America and in their perception of, you know, future immigrants that, that, that may come? That's a hard question. I actually had to, I'm going to let Amanda answer the main part, but I'm going to interject just one thing, which is that I think Catholicism in Latin America today, I think seems like a mundane point, but I actually think there's evidence, um, uh, you know, in the 1800s and 1900s of even white migrants coming to this country as Catholics and being seen as other. Um, and I, th- I think so in that sense, there seems to be this interesting historical trajectory, historical trajectory of like of, of starting to minimize some differences as other differences increase. Um, and I, I will just say with Latin America, I think that part of part of what we're seeing even now in the census debate is a, a sloppiness uh, with understanding how colonization happened there and what that meant for racial categorization, that we have just slapped a language of Hispanic or Spanish speaking on to try and like define it, and it doesn't work well. Um, <laughs> and I think that's part of the issue there. I With Muslims, though, um, and I, I promise to let Amanda speculate. So I, to me, it feels like there's there's um, kind of, as our paper starts with, a question of like, there's kind of both things happening. There's there's skin tone differences, um, cultural differences, and religious differences. And so trying to separate out all of those things is really difficult. Uh, so I'll let Amanda speak to what that might mean for the future. <laughs> yeah, this is a tough question. But I think it's a really good one and a really important one. I think one thing that we may forget when we're talking and so focused on race, um, and race is really important. I mean, I think most of us agree it's a social construct. It doesn't really mean anything, but we make it mean so much. And people's livelihoods, you know, are are at stake when they're identified as being part of one race versus another. Um, but race itself is a more modern concept than I think we 
give credit for. I think we think race is something that's been around for a very long time. Um, but really, I think religion was and really predates and played the role of what we understand race to be today. Um, and so if we look at, you know, even medieval times onward, we see that religion is really treated in a way that we would think is akin to race. And so um, one of the one of the earliest, I think, definitions of race included religion and blood. And in Spain in particular, there was this uh, purity of blood statutes that basically stated that um, individuals who were Jewish or Muslim, even if they had converted to Christianity, were not um, afforded the same rights as Christians because their blood was not pure. That's why it's called purity of blood statutes. And that to us today seems wild because, you know, again, religion is a, is a belief. It's something that you choose. It's something that you practice. Um, but, you know, before there was this concept of race, we treated religion as something that was passed down to you. It was immutable. And we were able to hierarchically um, stratify groups based on that. You know, through the process of colonialism and forcible conversions and a lot of people choosing to practice Christianity, it was a lot harder, especially in the new world, to hierarchically stratify people if everyone was the same religion. And uh, at the same time, there were a lot of the new science of race science was coming um, as, as the scientific re revolution was taking hold. And so what that meant was race was a very convenient new way to socially stratify groups. But I think what that history shows us is that religion is still often treated as and thought of as something that's immutable, that you can't erase even through conversion. And I think, you know, we certainly can appreciate the, the history in the United States of Catholics being very um, cast out um, by Protestants and kind of seeing as as the lesser version of Christianity in this hierarchy. Um, I think as the number of other people from other backgrounds, other races, other religions increased, it became more politically um, important to kind of consolidate and be like, okay, we're actually both Christian, so it's fine. We're different, but we're pretty much the same. Um, and I think we still see, you know, um, anti-Semitism today too. And there's actually been a rise of anti-Semitism uh, as, as well as of course, um, Islamophobia, which still exists um, and is, you know, influencing the lives of many Muslims in the United States. So I, that's a really long way to say that, you know, I don't think religion as a, as a tool to kind of separate is something that I see being minimized anytime soon, because it's just something that's been a part of, you know, human history for a really long time. I will say I have a lot of faith in Gen Zers <laughs> um, to kind of think more creatively. And I, I do think with social media, especially because, you know, with the pandemic, we relied so much on social media to connect with others, that people get to see a lot of different people from different backgrounds and see that you know, as you've mentioned, a lot of Muslims are just like, they call this in the United States, like the C and E Christians, they go to church on Christmas and Easter. And other than that, they're just kind of like, eh, okay. 
And I think a lot of Muslims can also be that way. They they might not pray. They certainly believe in God. They certainly believe in Allah. Um, they'll, you know, have some cultural um, uh, and religious practices. But in general, they're just your regular old Muslim, just like a regular old Christian. And And I think that was wild for a lot of people. They're like, what? That, I just thought you were Muslim fundamentalist and that's it. Um, but I think that maybe the younger generation can can hold that a little bit better. <laughs> we'll see. And I, I think uh, Amanda may raise such great points. And I think kind of the biggest overarching one is that people are really good at categorizing and othering. <laughs> and so until we learn how to stop doing that um i think i think we'll use whatever category is convenient um and i, I say that we as a people so hopefully yes i i have faith in gen z my hope is that you know the these we're learning better ways to talk about and reach across and bridge differences um and and i think that's where really the focus needs to be um but yeah you know it does seem that there's two stages to the broader question that was being asked. One is on the desirability of the particular immigrant groups, like what, attrib- what, what, what attributes do they have in terms of their proficiency in English, in terms of if they're very highly skilled, um, you know, those sort of attributes. And then there's the second question of whether or not you feel that they can correctly assimilate, you know, whatever that may mean within American culture. And one thing that we haven't spoken about um, much is the idea or is class. And I just want to know, does class matter at all? Or is it completely negated by this much broader force, I suppose, of religious identity when it comes to both perception of assimilation and the attributes that one possesses to, to you know, even be considered desirable as, as a prospective immigrant? This is a great question. I do think that um, class is so important and is often left out of discussions in uh, race and ethnic politics, and people are actively trying to bring it back into discussion. I think sometimes Americans can be a little uneasy talking about class, and so they don't want to think about class or talk about class in direct ways. And so one way to get around that, I think, is through other features such as, you know, how proficient are you in English, your education, perhaps your job. Um, This, I think, approximates something like socioeconomic status, which is like a more comfortable way, I think, for people to talk about um, class. Again, I think education is often, but not always, related to class. And I think people are a little bit more comfortable thinking about education because there seems to be more of a pathway for people to get education, even if they come from a lower, you know, socioeconomic background. But I think in general, when people think of someone who's highly educated with, you know, strong English skills, they're thinking about someone who probably had more means when they were immigrating to the United States. So the long and short of it is my sense is, you know, to think about class, to ask about class, you have to ask about other things because Americans are, are, somewhat unsettled by by thinking about it and talking about it directly. I'd agree with Amanda exactly in what she said. The only other thing that I would add is that 
Um, it's also difficult for the American public to agree on what class mean. So upper, middle, lower class all might have different definitions in people's minds. And even academics have different definitions of what they mean from paper to paper or book to book. So asking directly about it is also quite difficult and much easier to do, as Amanda says, which is to use proxies to try and substitute for what we might think class means. I'm curious to know if you guys have any sort of opinion. I'm sorry, actually, you, do, you would have an opinion on it, but the role that religious identity might play in the 2024 election, just because I saw the the first Republican debate um, and it didn't really feature in the same way. I mean, I remember in 2016, 2015, it was a much more, at least it felt to me, a much more palpable issue. Um talks of Islam, of Muslims, of, you know, extremism. Um, I haven't really seen that featured that much. Obviously, there's a lot of other things happening. Um, and uh, particularly within the, you know, the Republican Party with, you know, with Donald Trump. Um, but do you guys think that um, this question of religious identity of Muslims, of um, Islam, of Muslim immigrants will, you know, play some type of role in the 2024 elections? I think I say I think I think it's hard to to speculate too much to say that it's not going to matter at all or it's going to you know be the biggest thing. Um, I I think um, I think there's been so much discussion, so much framing in past elections um, that I I think the conversation can change and people can say still you know bring this up on, on people's horizon. So I, I don't think it's the case. It's not going to matter. Yeah. Um, I think that identities are useful because they bring people together. And so I don't know, like, I don't know how much it'll feature as a talking point among the different parties, but it could feature within communities as they try to politically organize um, with one another. I think um, some of the work, at least in political science on Muslim identity, um, there's, you know, there's a lot of great scholars and scholarship on this, but there's a more recent book by Nazisa Lajavadi, who studies Muslim American identity, broadly defined, not just, you know, men and Muslims, but Muslims of all um, different backgrounds. And so it is a salient and politicized, but also political group. Um, so I could definitely see them kind of, you know, could be by mosque or by, by community. It could be intersections of, you know, Muslims from certain, uh, countries or, or certain backgrounds. But I, I think that because the identity is so politicized, I do think that many Muslims might feel as though they should get politically involved because, you know, they want to try to protect themselves. Um, and that's what, you know, democracy is for, ideally, to kind of make your your voice heard. So um, it remains to be seen, I suppose. So just echoing what Tabitha said, but with more words and talking about some different stuff. <laughs> I completely agree with Amanda here. And I would just add that I think the other component that we're seeing right now is increased descriptive representation, which is when you have um, a historically marginalized or excluded group having a 
a political representative. And I think what this does um, is to both solidify the idea that Muslims need to become politically active, but also help to continue the focus um, and show the group that actually um, Muslims do have a voice politically and that their voice matters. Thank you to Dr. Amanda Sahar Dorso and Dr. Tabitha Bonilla for joining us on this extra inning of The Ballpark. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and unlike lots of other podcasts, we are ad-free. We'd also love to hear what you think about the show. So email us any feedback you have at uscenter.lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And please, if you'd like, tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Failing U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.